that's not advisable. (laughs) Double the friction, double the risk. Wearing two condoms is not a great call. In the field, in the lab next door. Got the plots you've been waiting for. Hello, professor. Here's the rub. It's misbehavior. Journal club. Hello, world. I'm your lockout girl. It's misbehavior. Journal club. Welcome, listeners, to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I am Amiel Moreno, PhD, here with the wonderful... Aw, Leah Krevit, Banff. And we are two, count them, two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females, bringing you the -the behind-the-scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, stuff, and humanity. So I just had the toughest week that I've had in I don't know how long. It was the week of Mother's Day in the floral shop. Oh, no. It's like Vietnam, but with flowers. That sounds fully accurate. I can't imagine a single point of of dissimilarity. Yep. By the end of the week, everybody was unable to articulate themselves at all because we were all absolutely (laughs) exhausted and be like, the pointy... Give me the point. The scissors. Yes. 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 (laughs) We are recording this on Mother's Day to horribly date the show. I hope that doesn't ruin anyone's experience. Did you make sure to call your mom already? I did. And we had the best talk. How about you? I I did as well. And at the end-ish, she was like, okay, well, I'll talk to you. I'm like, no, no, not not yet. (laughs) (laughs) I got this other thing I want to say. Because I came up with the best, in my mind, the best idea of what to get her, but I couldn't pull it off. But I wanted to tell her the story of like what I was hoping to do. A couple weeks ago in the flower shop, I picked up an order and I looked up what it was going to look like. And it was Christmas themed. It had like pine leaves with little acorns hanging off of it and it was red and white and the ribbon around it was like a plaid very Christmassy okay in May sure you know what Christmas Mother's Day a lot of overlap celebrating a birth under very trying circumstances yeah yeah Christmas is the ultimate Mother's Day am I saying that right I'm not really a Christmas expert My idea was, what if I got my Jewish mother a Christmas-themed bouquet (laughs) for Mother's Day? (laughs) In the middle of this crazy week when I was working like 16-hour days, I took time out and was actually late for work because I was trying to look up where I can order a Christmas bouquet in Los Angeles. And uh, it didn't happen. Dang. I also was going to, on the little card, I wanted to make it a, a joke to her. So I was going to write in the card that's supposed to say, hey, mom, thinking of you and, and love you lots. You know, that message to the recipient, I was going to, quote unquote, accidentally write a note to the florist yeah. and say, yes, I know it's a Christmas bouquet. Yes, I want you to send it. Don't worry. She'll love it. <laughs> so she opens the note and she's like, oh, who's this from? And that's what she reads. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be just, oh, but I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off. It was such a shame. So I just sent her Oof. chocolate-covered strawberries instead. I mean, that sounds fair. 
I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you can go wrong with chocolate-covered strawberries, but you can encounter a, a wide array of people who would disagree with you physiologically. Allergic to strawberries. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot process the seeds. Thank you for the gift of perforated intestinal sadness. They just build up in my appendix. <laughs> That's what happens when your appendix gets, like, infected, Yeah, too many strawberries. Right? <laughs> No, like things get caught in it, right? Isn't it like a little nook and it's a, you know, does whatever the fuck it does, but like, isn't, doesn't it get infected when like things get stuck in it or like, I have a pimple? Yeah, I have no idea what starts the infection, the itis ossitude. We are not those types of scientists. Can I tell you a trick if you ever wanted to get flowers for your mom for Mother's Day? Please. Okay, here's the thing that you need to remember. They're not making the flowers when you order them. You can, a week before Mother's Day, set up an order for some flowers to be delivered on Mother's Day and you know, wash off your hands like, woo, I am so ahead of it. They're not making them that day and just letting them get rotty and then sending out. They're still making it the day before or the day of. Unless you specifically request a zombie <laughs> bouquet. Like, I want Miss Havisham vibes. I want to send her a Dickensian reminder of the constant specter of death and decay. Well, every bouquet will be that after two weeks. (laughs) But I don't want her to have to wait. I want her to have it on the day. Wow, that would be some creepy ass shit. You would assume, like, if you got a bouquet of, like, just dead, dead flowers, you'd be like, something went wrong with delivery. Wait, no, let me continue my tip so that people have it. So, don't order your bouquet to be delivered on Mother's Day. Order it to be delivered on the Thursday or Friday before Mother's Day. What happens in a flower shop the week of Mother's Day is you start running out of flowers. And Mm. so there's these massive panics to get more. But all of the wholesalers are getting slammed with other requests from florists. So the stockpiles go way down. You have an order that says it's supposed to look like this. You can't make it look like that anymore. And so you end up grabbing other stuff. So if you order a bouquet and it's to be delivered on Mother's Day, they are pulling the worst flowers out in those moments or not having anything for what the bouquet was going to look like. So get them when they are completely flush with every single flower that they think they'll need for Mother's Day on Thursday or Friday. I love this tip. I had no idea that makes perfect sense. That um, did remind me that a journalist got sent a rotting piece of fruit by Bill Cosby after asking him questions and publishing a piece that he didn't like. Hmm. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, neither did the journalist at the time. It's just like, what the fuck? You know, when a town crier would say something that the villagers didn't like, and so they'd throw rotten tomatoes. This is just having the rotten tomatoes delivered to you. Yeah, modern conveniences. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon Prime delivery of rotten tomatoes. Yeah, uh, Uber, eat this! And then they have to throw (laughs) it at the recipient. (laughs) I keep getting Uber Eats and Grubhub, like, push notifications trying to get me to order stuff for my mom. Oh, okay. Via Uber Eats. Mm -hmm. Which, like, I don't want to knock convenience, I'm sure, for some people that's working, but it's just, it's a weird message messenger combo. Oh, okay. 
I remember asking people earlier in the week what they were getting their mom and somebody was like, send her a wonderful lunch for her to have. Did you not like the, why, what uh, bothered you? It's just the, um, the incongruence between Uber Eats is the thing that I get pizza on when mm-hmm. it's too late and I'm too tired and I've just decided to give it up and be a degenerate, you know? <laughs> So, like, I'm not thinking of my mom when I'm ordering Uber Eats. That'd be like, it'd be like Tinder sending you a push notification. Hey, do you want to get your mom a... I don't even know. It is really creepy when there's a company in which you know somebody's assignment was to somehow make their company fit in with whatever event is happening. Yes. I love it when that Like a happens. Mexican restaurant trying to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. They're like, we got to do something. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> you really don't. First of all, you can sit this one out. Second of all, you are doing something. You're a Mexican place that's serving food on a day when a lot of people are drunk. You're gonna <laughs> get business. Yeah. So you had an app that was, sounds like it's associated with shame attempting to help you form a better relationship with your mother. (laughs) It would have been better if it was like, hey, here's how much you spent on delivery in the past uh, half year. Uh Don't you owe it to your mother (laughs) to give her a call or send her (laughs) something nice? (laughs) She, She taught you better housekeeping and fiscal hygiene than to order from us this much. Do you want to send her something nice? Or do you want us to send her a nice card letting her know how much you spend with us? That would be effective. How much you've failed her, basically. (laughs) Pretty much. Every pizza is a surrender. Every fry you die. (laughs) So, um... How do you think we should transition to your biomolecules? Just like that. Biomolecules. (laughs) Seriously, let's keep it. Why mess with perfection? I was thinking about the ways that ion channels can be conceived of as similar to basketball hoops for reasons. Doesn't matter why. And... The only thing... (laughs) It would be like if the channel's free-floating in an area where the ball is just entering the same space that it was before it passed through the channel. Uh, yes, so there's a little bit of imagination, the inherent imperfection of models. We're ignoring that part and just (laughs) focusing on the hoop itself. After all, my talk about context and how it can never be ignored. Just like, nah, whatever. Hoop in space. Uh, Analogies aren't born to bear close examination. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's why I almost never use them. Except for when I do. Um, So what is is more like this biomolecular space that you're trying to describe than basketball? This giant yoga ball ball pit I saw in this YouTube video. A Twitter friend started talking about all the different sports that can or can't be used as analogous to ion transport. One thing that was missing from that list was an obstacle course in a giant ball pit. 
So I went looking for that on YouTube and Amiel. Mm -hmm. I found things. Oh, I want an adult ball pit really bad. (laughs) It seems very fun. Yeah, there's this period of time when you're a child where you don't think about how dirty the balls are. And then (laughs) you realize how dirty the balls most likely are. But if there was an adult ball pit... Mm-hmm. You know, people wouldn't be <laughs> shitty little dirty kids in it. They would be shitty now, adults, but I think shitty adults would be more cleanly. <laughs> now that I think about it, there would absolutely be puking in the ball pit. <laughs> like, there's just no way. I'm picturing some annoyed lifeguard on the edge of the ball pit with the <laughs> net that d- picks up all the balls <laughs> that have the vomit on it and just sighing. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah, that's a job. Ooh, you could, okay, part of the way that you could subsidize this ball pit, you you could open it up to observation from biophysicists, anyone who deals with fluid dynamics. Just use your ball pit as a life-size model for the various, the distribution of various fluids and solids in a pit full of spheres. Yeah, so it's like, they could pay you to set up cameras and then they could compare their simulations of puke in a ball pit to uh, real life observations. I know this sounds crazy. I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> this is my field of dreams. So I, I hate to be a naysayer, but I just. <laughs> <laughs> field of dreams. Pit of puke, one and the same. I would have been a lot more happy with that movie if it had been him building a ball pit. (laughs) Okay, so I was unfamiliar with this particular strain of vlogger, but I should have surmised (laughs) there is such a thing as a vlog house. And that Uh, is the... I know. House of narcissism. (laughs) I'm sure there are good ones, and I'm sure they're they're all full of people living their dreams. So, like, good for them. But this video was, like, the closest to hell that I've ever been. Um, But it's filled with these vloggers who filled a room with a bunch of yoga balls and then just, you know, dove into them and threw them at each other and all the things that you do with a giant human-sized ball pit. But then... They have a slide as well, like one of those tube slides on the playground. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment where they were throwing bouncy balls and yoga balls and ball pit balls, all the balls down the slide, just throw, 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 having a good time. And then they videoed themselves going down the slide, but one of the balls below them was too big. They were trapped oh, for a no. moment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. no! <laughs> And balls were coming down to them from above. So at this point, like, this has become 127 hours, but with bouncy (laughs) balls. And all of a sudden, I am in heaven. While they're in PVC hell. (laughs) Indeed. I have nothing more to say. It just, it made me so happy to think about that I seriously had to reevaluate my understanding of who I am and how decent of a person I am. And it did remind me of all the very stupid ways animals and people have died over the eons. All the whales who have gotten themselves beached trying to do stupid things, which 
we're going to be talking about death today and near-death experiences and death experiences. And <laughs> I might sometimes have trouble having fun talking and thinking about dying people. But I heard recently specifically about the whale beaching. I heard that a lot of times it's because they're sick and they can't continue swimming. They would just fall down to the bottom of the ocean and die. And so they're ill. And these attempts to unbeach whales are potentially just killing them because they're just going to sink. They're ill. And they've just, they're there to die. That is the purpose of it. Uh, how would you differentiate that hypothesis of going going on land to die with the hypothesis of trying to be in a shallower place where you don't have to swim as hard to, to get to the surface and breathe and then just getting caught there? Well, I wouldn't be able to parse that out just by looking at a marine mammal, but the advice now for how to handle a marine animal that has beached itself is to not approach it and to not attempt to push it back into the water. Okay, yeah. and do they, do they get back if you don't push them in? Do they unbeach? I don't know. It's kind of sad, but... So what if instead of pushing whales back in, we just sh shot them? Is that, like, this whale is begging for death? Do you want to let it die slow, or do you want to... Yeah, I bet that decision is made by authorities. If you decide to, okay, let's call the authorities. There's a beached animal. I don't know how to deal with it. There's, there's a whale shooter. <laughs> Sorry, no. I know it's a real job and a, a real predicament in several animals. <laughs> yeah, uh, my my sister. I like to refer to her as a plant assassin because she is just a killer mm. of invasive species. I have the blood of a great many rodents on my hands. <laughs> so yeah, I can relate. So, from beached whales to boy fails, I have some bad news about the Anulo network. It might be coming to an end. Which, in terms of nominative determinism, I mean, Anulo. <laughs> you don't see that coming. That's on you, buddy. <laughs> I like that the death of the network is not at a female's hands. I think that a group of men couldn't communicate and... That's why, at least that's the impression that I'm getting. Or it's a group of people who couldn't communicate and they just happen to all be men. You decide, audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. If I wanted to study a bunch of people and the, the impact that sex may or may not have on their ability to communicate, I'd be a human psychologist and I'd cry every night. I feel really happy when I make my psychiatrist cry. Like, <laughs> like I've done something that day. Like, my pain is real because it, it isn't just in me. Talking about it is affective. Damn. Damn, no, that's... That, <laughs> okay, I get that you're being funny, but that is a, a real human need. And that it, it, it doesn't need to come from a trained professional, but just the need to have your shit witnessed. Hi, Dr. Sarah. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, to this and to that. <laughs> we are going to keep on putting out shows on our Patreon. I am going to distribute the shows on the various platforms and take over ownership of it. Changes are coming, but we don't necessarily want to stop the show because of it.
Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? Also, should we say something about how if you have a favorite podcast network, we're, we're open. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> so we're on the market. Yeah, come come according, podcast <laughs> networks. Yeah. What's it called when a, a woman is... Um, open for business? Yeah, like she goes through like a, a debutante thing. Yeah, there's a debutante ball. But then when she's like accepting male suitors, she's... <sighs> this is... It's just making me think of Bridgerton, which I really yeah. want to stress the extent to which I was tricked into watching it by the presence of Julie Andrews. Okay. <laughs> I was like, she's doing the voiceover. This must be legit. It wasn't. But by that time, I was so invested in particular situations. And uh, that's that's how a show gets you. But I do, I do want to state, I know it's so dumb. I know it's so, so dumb. It's Shonda Rhimes. She can put on, and I think it's a female. They can, I can just use the they pronoun. Who, Shonda? Yeah, she's a she. Puts on a pretty great show. It's very pretty. It's, okay, everything is amazing except for the writing. And that part is pretty fucking important. (laughs) I also hate the period of dress that they Mm. wear. That's that empire waist. It makes everyone Mm -hmm. look stupid. And I want to watch for dresses. I love (laughs) looking at Oscar night because of the dresses. And I look at them and I think, me in that dress. But all of the Bridgerton dresses are this horrible style that I'm like, come on, season three, switch it up. Like there's this revolution and they discover a bustier. <laughs> I love it. You know what I wish um, happened in Bridgerton next season? <laughs> That's why we met up to record today. We needed to discuss this. We're a neuroscience podcast. <laughs> Okay, I'm all ears too. Like, don't don't misunderstand. I'm not like, why are we doing this? I'm like, we're doing this. <laughs> this is happening. So, just today, I was looking up various things that happen to cells after the death of the of an organism, such that a freshly decapitated ox, you, its head can serve as a battery. You can have an ox, like you know, you you, you know, a potato clock. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why wouldn't you just have the ox pull something for you? And that's your battery. Because Why would you cut off its head? To get, to get an ox battery. <laughs> because first of all, sometimes oxen die. Second of all, sometimes <laughs> oxen quick, cross somebody you. Somebody get the head. I need to charge this thing. <laughs> oh, my phone's dead. Damn it. Does anyone have- At least I've got this dead ox. <laughs> Does anyone have an ox and an axe? Is it like you set it in some saline solution and you put two electro ends of your... How do you set up a dead cow head battery? So the pictures I've seen just have, I think, electrodes straight There are the- pictures? <laughs> There are drawings. There are diagrams. What? <laughs> yes. Okay. Google Aldini. A-L-D-I-N-E. No. Ox head. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Tell me what you see. I see a, a, a fop. An 
uh, some sort of 17th century foppish gentleman in a black and white drawing with a very large ox head on a table. And he's holding a delicate electrode-like device that is placed on the ox's tongue. Is that what you're looking at, too? That's the It's what I saw this morning. Aldini's yeah. ox battery. Yes, ma'am. <gasps> so that was around Bridgerton time. Wow, he's got no thighs. Somebody needs to do some squats. <laughs> the, I mean, the precursor for that line of work. Some line of work? <laughs> <laughs> that line of inquiry, whatever. Um, Giovanni Aldini, he was the nephew of Luigi Galvani. Um, oh, I don't know who the fuck mm. that is. <laughs> Mr. Bioelectricity, or Dr. Bioelectricity. So in, let's see, 1780, uh, Galvani and his wife, they put a spark to the legs of dead frogs, and they twitched, and they're like, not electricity, living dead. And Mary Shelley was like, go on. But actually, yes, no, Galvanism was the inspiration for Frankenstein. That was one of those scientific debates where Galvani was like, there's electricity coming from the animal. It is mm. animal electricity. Just like how we used to think that chemicals, like living chemicals, were imbued with some sort of essence oh, of life until they first isolated or synthesized urea. And they were like, oh, it's just stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> <is> this humus? <laughs> like, you can make it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about some notable news and topics. That sounds great. I just want to interject that. Um, so Galvani was like, Meh, it's animal electricity. And uh, what's his face? Fuck. What, you what, made fuck. me stop talking I should for know this. this. No, Volta. <laughs> Sorry. No, um, Volta was like, um, no, maybe if you didn't use so much fucking metal, you wouldn't be getting all this electricity happening. Um, and it's like, they were hmm. both a little bit right. So Galvani's first experiments were like, not. Nah, super awesome but obviously animals do produce and or conduct electricity super well and um yeah volta was so uh they they argued so hard that volta invented the battery about it oh my gosh volta is a great stage name <laughs> i feel like that's an american gladiator that sounds right yeah now entering the arena volta <laughs> <laughs> she's bad her hair is all up uh like frankenstein's wife Yep, yep, yep. Appropriate. Oh, bride. I don't think they actually sealed the deal. Oh, really? Yeah, they got the, it annulled? The, <laughs> Can you imagine being Franken the <laughs> Frankenstein's monstrous divorce lawyer? <laughs> I bet it would be hilarious. Anyways. <laughs> science, because that's what we're here to talk about. Right. Yes. Moving along. This is just a combination of some notable news. I'm going to be talking about a newer research paper, but the subject is not a notable news. It's just a, a topic that we decided to bring to the show. Yeah. Earlier, uh, DMT came up, and first of all, I said some real dumb shit about <laughs> <laughs> contents, routes of administration, and metabolism. That happens. Well, and, and, and I used to care so much about the details of routes of administration that I almost didn't give a student points on a quiz when she said that a rectal route was an anal route. Because I'm like, no, when you administer something on your cheek, you don't say you put it on your lips. Like, region matters. Mucous membranes matter. Those are two different 
body parts. And now I'm just like, how do you take DMT? Maybe with enzymes, maybe with inhibitors. Uh, I don't know. I haven't opened a book in a long time. So that was a big fall for me. Slash a reminder not to talk about things I haven't recently refreshed myself on. But yeah, just mistakes happen. But the good thing about being a curious person is you often recognize your mistakes and fix them. And that's what we're here doing, talking about DMT, having actually done a little bit of background research so that we can be intelligent about it. Yeah, that's the dream. We were talking about DMT and death, and we came to the realization that while we understand that there's some sort of connection and that certain people have extrapolated it into DMT and and a dying brain being highly related to one another, we didn't actually know the research behind that. Yeah, and uh, so we looked into it, and it turns out you're never going to believe this. No, you're not. It's really complicated, and we've got like a lot of work to do before we have kind of any basic grasp on what the fuck is happening. But first, let's talk about a notable news. Okay, I'm going to be presenting a paper out of Frontiers of Aging Neuroscience. It's titled, Enhanced Interplay of Neuronal Coherence and Coupling in the Dying Human Brain. It's out of Henan University People's Hospital. It's out of University of Louisville. It's out of five other hospitals and institutes across the world that all kind of worked together with the same data. The first author is Vicente. And the last author is Zamar. So we don't really know what happens in the brain when it's deprived of oxygen during death. We have some research out of mice that suggests certain changes in your brain waves, but we don't know how true that is for humans. And guess what? We're never going to have a healthy participant die on us so that we can study their brainwaves because it's impossible by definition. You know what that just made me realize, though? We must have a large and ever-growing pile of Fitbit data from the moments people die. Hold on, I had to bet. I, I don't know where I wrote it down. At what minute you were going to bring up Fitbit when we were discussing this paper. (laughs) You can set your watch to it. I think the over-under was 10 minutes, so I think, yeah, I think (laughs) I got that one. (laughs) I love it so much. I want more Fitbit science. I want more smart vapes giving their data to people who want to use it for science-y reasons and not creepy-ass reasons. Same thing with sex toys, a clit bit. Hello. (sighs) Very low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Come on. And we're usually such high-standing vegetables. What? Nothing. Wait, so what? as luck would have it, quote-unquote, a cardiac patient had an EEG on during their death, and we got the first recording of the human brain's activity during death. This research just came out this year. It's pretty fucking wild. A 87-year-old patient was undergoing cardiac arrest. He had been stable after a subdermal hematoma, and he had a DNR, so they couldn't work on resuscitating them. And because he had the EEG recording being performed, the hospital ended up having that recording and realized how important it was. I'm starting to feel surprised that it hasn't happened before. Because, I mean... People being hooked up to a lot of devices measuring physiological stuff and people dying 
That's a Venn diagram with a pretty big middle chunk. They were able to look at the brain waves that were produced, the coherence, which is different areas of the brain and, and how their brain waves differ, as well as the coupling, which is what is occurring and how they might affect one another. We use the analogy of the brain as orchestra a lot. Mm -hmm. Like many analogies, it's imperfect, but it might be helpful to keep in your mind here. You know, different brain regions think of tubas versus trombone, brass versus strings. After analyzing the data, they found that there was changes in the frequencies of brain waves. So these are alpha, theta, gamma. Each one of those is defining a region of hertz, a certain frequency, that the cells in the brain can be firing at. So gamma is uh, the upper end. It can be from 30 to 60 hertz or 80 to 150 hertz. So gamma waves are very fast and spiky, whereas beta is less, alpha is less than that, theta even less than that, and delta is just slow-moving, calm water. So there was a decrease in some and an increase in others, and what they found was there was a decrease in the theta activity and an increase in the absolute gamma power. Increased gamma power is associated with being able to perform behavioral tasks better. It's associated with times when you're in high concentration. If I'm not mistaken, this is related to uh, consumer electronics like uh, games where they have a little, little headset where you can put on and it picks up gamma waves. And the more gamma waves you have, the, the the harder you're focusing, the more you can make a little ball move or something or other. Yeah, that's come up on a, another one of our shows. That is something that they can oh, use yeah. for biofeedback as well yeah, yeah, in order yeah. to potentially increase somebody's ability to induce gamma waves. When the EEG recording has those smooth alpha waves, that's associated with more relaxed and passive attention in the subject. And these waves, can you see them like, hey, that's clearly an alpha wave, that's a gamma wave, or does it all just kind of jumble into one spiky mess that you have to use a bunch of math to figure out? This isn't radio lab, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> the look she just gave me. <laughs> Don't give me this fakey. Is that is that something <laughs> that somebody would be able to know? <laughs> People are trained in looking at these recordings and experts are able to spot it on site. Yeah, I'm sure. I keep coming back to this analogy and by I, I mean a lot of people because it's a very convenient analogy. But um, if you are listening to an orchestra you'd kind of be able to just automatically pick out, yeah, that's the violins doing their violin thing, those are the basses, that's a timpani, that's an oboe, and they're different. Um, but if you're looking at just a readout of the sound waves in the room, um, you would have to be very well trained or have some very fancy models at your disposal to pick out who's active and when. I mentioned earlier that there was a broadband gamma frequency and a narrowband gamma frequency. There are different methodologies that have to be applied when you're looking for one of those. It's a, a complicated science. So what does this mean? In the human brain and other 
mammal brains, gamma bands are mostly mediated by alpha waves. Their activity is, is regulated by them, like, um, like an analogy that's absolutely perfect that I say right now. <laughs> the authors say that, quote, given that cross-coupling between alpha and gamma activity is involved in cognitive processes and memory recall in healthy subjects, it is intriguing to speculate that such activity could support a last, quote, recall of life that may take place in a near-death state. When we're talking about things that are on your mind when you die, or when you almost die, we can look to descriptions of near-death experiences, um, or experiences related to near-death experiences. There's a paper that just came out, Guidelines and Standards for the Study of Death and Recalled Experiences of Death, a Multidisciplinary Consensus Statement and Proposed Future Directions. First author is Parnia, last author is Shirazi, and guess how many other authors there are, Amiel? Okay, um, over 22. Oh, close. Not that many. Oh man, by Price is Right rules. You don't get the swimming pool. Don't get to fill it full of balls. You mean I don't get the outdoor lounger set? (laughs) You're gonna have to get it yourself, bitch. It's always some sort of thing that as a child staying homesick from school, I'm like, I would never be able to use that. Yep, yep, yep. They should have prices right for kids. But first we have to make sure that these kids have worked a solid (laughs) week so that they understand the value of of a dollar. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to share a couple quotes about that experience of of near death. And it's not entirely fair for me to harp on how many authors this has, which 18, by the way, because this is a consensus statement. Hmm. It's a thing where a bunch of people who studied this shit got together and were like, wow, our shit is not standardized. Mm -hmm. And it was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, again, in 2022, And uh, I just wanted to speak to those EEG findings you were discussing, because when people recall their experiences of almost death, there are a lot of themes that emerge. These are recall of life quotes. That cognitive chaos you were talking about is, is highly relevant to all of this. Let's see, some themes that emerge are re experiencing each moment of life. Like Mm. the direct quote, I was able to re-experience myself in all events of my life. I was feeling them happen again as if I were there. But you also see things like, I could examine my experiences from multiple perspectives, such as Mm. the people they had affected. A lot of people come away with an understanding of multiple potential lives. Like, uh, I knew this wasn't my first time here. There's a lot more. They'll come up again. I just wanted to put some, like, human words to to that neural phenomenon you were describing. Sure, and that's what the authors are uh, attempting to do here by intriguing to speculate in yeah. their discussions. <laughs> Those are always words you want to hear. <laughs> they, they kind of can only do that. We're seeing this brain activity, and what does it mean? Another very important point that they discovered by getting these EEG recordings is that they're very similar to the rodent studies, 
So it turns out, yeah, that is a good model for understanding exactly what happens in the brain during death because of how related their results were to previous results in rodents. But there's this huge caveat that the patient had post-traumatic brain injury. They had a hemorrhage and swelling and a seizure recently before this recording was made. So they don't overstep it. They totally acknowledge that. And they stress that this is what it could look like in a brain that has that recent experience. And this is also making me wonder about privacy and um, data sets that you collect from people and how they're distributed and used after your death. Mm. This could be going into a topia corner, a utopia, or a dystopia. To prevent future dystopias, <laughs> let's all be more hip to the neuroethics of data collection and dissemination. <laughs> you know how it's like relatively easy to de-anonymize various medical records? No, I didn't um, know that it was relatively easy to... Uh, to re-identify. Like I if thought you, you have had a, to have a key for it. A key helps, but you can also do some basic sleuthing. That's why there are so many things that you have to keep in mind as a doctor posting on social media mm. about mm -hmm. like, I had this super interesting case, or look at this kidney. This is the kidneyest kidney I've ever seen. Oh my goodness. You know. Or when you're a nurse and you're sharing a picture of an x-ray that has a very large vase shoved up a man's rectum. Yeah. At a bar no. and showing people. Has, Lexi has, has that happened? Seriously? <laughs> My friend was doing it. I was like, I don't think that this is allowed. Well, it, it depends. If it's de-identified, if there's no identifying info on it, then it can be okay to share depending on the specific policies. But the question is... How easy is it to identify someone by an x-ray of a, of a vase shoved up their bum? Because the worst case scenario is that you post something and then the patient reads it. And it's just a thread full of people making fun of the patient. Like, that shit keeps people out of the hospital. That shit literally kills people because they are worried, like, are they going to do that shit to me? So, um, but that's more about conduct than info sharing. Maybe an easier parallel is genetic info. So if you do 23andMe, which like, oh my god, why? Um, that genetic data is just fucking out there. And it may contain things that you don't want insurance companies to end up finding out about. Mm -hmm. What about your neuroimaging data? What, as we get better and better at finding various details, or like, this is a characteristic pattern that you only see in people who have a history of methamphetamine use or a, you know, history of child abuse. I mean, this is sci-fi level stuff, but it's not that far off to think that there are things you can find in someone's neuroimaging data that they might not want out there. I would argue in this case, when the information is released in regards to what your brain was doing when you're dead, it's no longer your problem. Uh, that is the attitude that I would also take toward my dying body, but that's not universal. So in terms of future directions for this article, I feel like the next scientist who is trying to plan out an experiment where we get these types of recordings would perhaps benefit by being a sociopath, able to plan killing their patients, Dr. Mengele style. 
I sorry, I'm so thrown off by the Dr. Mengele. I like I can't have fun in the Holocaust space. Call me hypersensitive. I agree with the idea that a society in which people were collecting data, killing participants, <laughs> we would have a lot like, more answers. That's a plenty informative dystopia. Yeah, that's got to be like dystopia in the top 15 of those lists. You know how every so often they ask scientists like, what terribly unethical experiments would you maybe uh, want to try? I want to read that. <laughs> there, are, there are several articles published. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about that next episode. Sweet. So until more people die with EEG caps on, we won't know more about the type of coordinated activity the brain displays during death, unfortunately. So that's death. That's a great new finding we suddenly know about the human brain during death, or at least know very much about this one particular possibly Romanian individual during their death. What does that have to do with DMT? A question as old as time, the perception of which is all messed up when you're on DMT and or when you're dying. Hey, a commonality! First, I just want to give the big-ass caveat that I am not as well-versed in the phenomenology of DMT as I should be to talk about this. I am completely illiterate when it comes to psychopharmacology, so enjoy! <laughs> a researcher called Graham St. Scott had in his notes... Quote, speculative science on the DMT gland has inspired writers of fiction, screenwriters, and musicians who've appropriated the pineal DMT meme as a device to advance narratives vested in diverse metaphysical perspectives on the human condition. Doesn't that sound familiar? The fact that we get stories out of movies, literature, about DMT as this magic drug that lets us see a side of ourselves that's other and is what happens when you die. The spirit molecule, as it's been referred to. Mm -hmm. And also the fucking pineal gland. It keeps showing up as just like the first thing that people latch onto. It was the seat of consciousness. It was uh, Descartes mm -hmm. thought that the pineal gland was what, where the soul is? where The the, the, the point of contact between the soul, the body, and the place where our thoughts are formed. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? There's <laughs> just one fucking gland. <laughs> and that comes up a lot in like hippy dippy circles too. The pineal gland is very much still active as a, a seat of consciousness in your third eye. People that I wouldn't trust to operate heavy machinery <laughs> discussing brain anatomy. Yeah, it's rough. It gets rough. But that being said, <laughs> now that I just th said that thing about the third eye, there's a reason it's so prominent, which is that it literally can be how some animals use light to regulate their circadian rhythms and seasonal whoozy-whatsits and stuff. There are yeah. photoreceptors there, and some animals it's like right up top where it actually would be exposed to light. Like, mm. it does stuff, just like, not that fucking much stuff. The pineal gland is a small neuroendocrine organ, and its main and most conserved function across animals is nighttime secretion of melatonin. Nighttime secretions, by the way, is <laughs> <laughs> the name of the phone sex line that I run. Hi, doing my name is Volta. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> 
Would you like to hear about the hydrostatic pressure in my genital mucous membranes? Oh, I'm feeling engorged. I'm forcing fluid out of the intracellular sp- the, the, the extracellular space. My Bartholin gland. <laughs> Guess what consistency? Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> so people are thinking that this small little gland is responsible for producing massive amounts of mind-altering DMT once you fucking pass off this mortal coil, dude. Man, but sounds like there's a but there. But can it actually do that? Oh, what a question! And what did the steam find? Right now I'm looking over a review by David E. Nichols, which is very similar to a Nichols E. Davies that also (laughs) contributes to the podcast. How many aliases and lives does that guy have? It's titled N, N dimethyl tryptamine and the pineal gland, separating fact from myth. And he basically goes through what evidence would suggest that DMT is produced in amounts that could be mind-altering natively in our brains, and perhaps during encounters with death. Rad. Yeah. I look forward to reading that and wish I had done so in the prep for this episode. It's helped me, let's just say, sound smarter than I actually am already in this episode. (laughs) That sounds like a good advertisement for literacy in general. Do you experience neurological perturbations? (laughs) Try reading. (laughs) Who doesn't? DMT is a psychoactive drug that can technically be created in the body, but it's likely that the pineal gland can't do it in large enough amounts to reach, quote, DMT space. But when you take doses of DMT... You have mind-altering experiences in a psychedelic realm that people are very fascinated and interested in. Yeah, these reports of near-death experience-like experiences on DMT, and these reports of trip-like experiences upon near-death, the similarities between those two can kind of help explain how that connection came to be posited, but... Uh, they're both super complex and squishy phenomena with a lot of stuff that we need to work out when it comes to actually studying them systematically. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, can you give us some of the examples from your article in which people gave their personal experiences with death? Can you give us the ones that sound almost like they're tripping on DMT? Absolutely. Awesome. So one one thing that I'm largely going on here, which again, is not to be confused with actual expertise or even the most cursory reading. But um, Shane Moss has a show focused on tripping and all its various forms and delights and insights. Oh, I just did all the drugs. Um, He's described his experiences with DMT many times. They really came up again in that near-death experience recall study in reports like this. Everything was hyper-realistic, perhaps more real than I have ever known reality to Mm. be. I would like to insert a snippet here of Shane Moss describing his DMT experience. 
DMT is like, hey, you know all of this reality and perception that you are super familiar with and very convinced is real? Well, sorry about this. Zip. Tent of lies collapses, something else entirely going on. It is a real red pill, blue pill, matrixy kind of moment. He said it was something like, um... Everything I've ever known just goes, gone. And then it was just me in this bong in space. Not like planets or stars or anything, just a black infinite void. And all of a sudden he was just in this other space. Brought the bong with me. Real space. Uh, there's another near-death experience report that uh, says, Our daily life seems like a dream in comparison to my experience. Wow. Yeah, so that kind of, yeah, that hyper-realism, um, that clarity, that focus. It's almost like we could play a game very easily in which you're taking the list of those near-death experiences and intermixing them with people describing their trips on DMT, and the other person would have no idea which one you were quoting. That sounds highly accurate. Yeah. It's almost like we should have prepared that for this. Oh, that would have been great. <laughs> Shit. Sorry, audience. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, give us some, a couple more of these uh, cool quotes from near-death experiences. The sensory uh, parallels really popped out. I'm sure you've heard the canonical, you know, tunnel with the light at the end of it. Uh, quotes include, I traveled through a kind of tunnel. It appears as though we were going through a tunnel of light. If you look at art produced by people about their DMT experience or at descriptions mm -hmm. of the visual experiences associated with being on DMT, people often describe them as cathedrals. Like it's the, the idea mm. of being surrounded by this kind of curved fractal set of repeating shapes, curvy triangles, uh, a lot of <laughs> eyes everywhere. Like picture number nine with the guy and the eyeballs coming out okay, of his brain. Look at how many of those pictures involve a central <laughs> source of, of bright light and kind of a tunnely geometric effect. I'm not saying it's all of them, but it is very much not a tiny minority at all. It's fun to look uh, at. We will put a link in the show notes to a, a set of relevant DMT art. The tunnel vision that you get, the bright light, can be explained in terms of the oxygenation of the retina. Apparently the edges of your retina lose blood flow earlier than the center, which would make things appear as though there was a center brightness and everything else was darker around huh. it. That's one of the possible explanations for that, that tunnel thing. Another thing that is experienced by both people who are on DMT and near-death experiences explained is moving out of your body, mm. the loss of corporeal essence. Yes. All right. So relevant quotes include, uh, again, this is from the, the near-death cohort, not any DMT folks. I left my body. I remember being in the hospital room and realizing that I was not in my body. Upon ending their near-death experience and, and, and resuming living, there are things like, I was being sucked back into my body like it was a vacuum. Wow. Or, being dropped back into my body wasn't pleasant. I felt my body bounce. I still could not breathe. 
And people with just a little bit of background in neuroscience can completely explain that phenomenon as a problem in your proprioception. When areas of the brain that are responsible for placing us in space are fucked up, either by drugs or by a brain hemorrhage in that specific region, people describe being out of their body. And that phenomenon, that feeling, just because it exists, doesn't mean you're actually leaving your body. What? <laughs> in fact, this is a really funny story that I heard anecdotally about a doctor who has had patients on his table who have lost consciousness and have had out-of-body experiences. He has placed a post-it note on the top of the light that shines down at the patient while he's working on them. And he will ask them, well, if you had left your body, what did the post-it note say? No shit. I know. That's a good grounding technique. Literal grounding technique. <laughs> yeah. I remember being on a first date and somebody saying, but we all feel like we're out of our body. I'm like, yeah, that's something that you are capable of feeling. Does okay. not make it true. I'm going to need a bunch more info about this first date and description of out-of-body experiences. Oh. <laughs> Oh, we were just, uh, no, it's, I would if it was interesting. That was, hey, that was the most interesting part of the date. <laughs> what I just described. Uh, and it is interesting how many of those descriptions of near-death experiences do involve not just leaving your body, not just observing the room, but specifically floating up and having a bird's eye view. Mm. You know, why doesn't everyone why, why why doesn't anyone ever exit their body to the side <laughs> or to the floor? <laughs> do you ever notice the view that you get in your dreams? Like sometimes I feel like I do well, get a bird's eye view, but I never get any other view. I think that's the trippiest question I've heard in months. I Oh dang. Oh my gosh. Okay, sometimes I am in a a body that is mine and I'm looking through my eyes. Other times, I am definitely looking at myself as right? if I'm playing a video game and it's not like quite first person. I can see my little avatar running around. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and it jumps back and forth. I also wonder about the reports that people have given of being on the edge of death and extreme stress, um, specifically processing that stress. They say things like, I knew, obviously, my body still lay in my bed, but I could not go back into it anymore. Is this death? I contemplated. Also, I knew that I had died and would be leaving behind a five to six month old infant mm. and my husband. Mm. Stuff like that, just general, like, oh, oh, this, this is, this is how I die. Also, there are several less stressy ways of processing that, like, um... I felt wonderful and light where I was. I had mm. no pain and no problems. While in this place, I was weightless. Are there any that say, like, I suddenly found myself feeling toasty warm, as if fire lapped at my toes. The, <laughs> the pokey prongs of imp-like beans began to rip apart my flesh. That's what I'm any, saying. Anything like that? Is there Everyone anything? always rises up. The light is always white. Why is it never? Yeah. Well, okay. I was starting off like a joke, but can you recall any of them that described like immense pain, 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 immense pain? Um, 
I feel like there's only one that I remember. There is embarrassment and shame that does ah, emerge mm-hmm. as a uh, as a theme mm-hmm. um, in my life. General- and in- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, everywhere. I know that when I roll the dice on my death, my death that will happen to me, I don't know what those dice are actually going to say, but I've got a feeling that I'm going to have the regret, massive regret, (laughs) end of life experience. (laughs) Why wait until death? (laughs) You can experience massive regret any moment of your living (laughs) being time. And I do! (laughs) One other thing that stuck out to me was the kind of derealization, depersonalization, the sense of leaving your body and no longer being you and Mm. being able to see your body, but uh, as someone described, as a detached observer, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, Someone said... I recognized the body as mine, but was no longer interested. I was not that body. Hmm. That reminded me of accounts of Capgras delusion. Yeah, that's that phenomenon where you think that somebody has been snatched out of their body. They look like the person you know, they sound like the person that you used to know, but it's not them. And it's a paranoid delusion. Exactly. And it's heartbreaking and it ruins lives, but it also offers a fascinating window into how you perceive a person Mm -hmm. and what the fuck does it mean to be a person inhabiting a body. And the idea that you can even separate those two experiences is, yeah, a very terrible, awful, no good, very bad, highly useful model (laughs) uh, to help us understand a lot of higher level processing type stuff. There's also the perception that one of your limbs is no longer controlled by you or is no longer part of you. That's something that can lead people to seek amputation of healthy limbs. Do not have the name of that delusion on hand, but it's a thing. So that that stuck out to me as just an interesting connection to other happenings in neurospace. This paper that I'm citing, I'm pretty much just reading quotes from it. There's a lot more shit in this review. I highly recommend it. Read that paper. Or don't. I'm not the boss of you. Also, we didn't even get to the thing about uh, why it's so hard to study DMT experiences. One of the reasons is that there's a very high attrition rate of subjects in studies on psychedelic slash studies in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can read more about that in... A paper with one of the best titles ever. Yeah? It's titled, Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out. There's no sub... There is. Predictors of Attrition in a Prospective Observational Cohort Study on Psychedelic Use. Boring. That's like that paper on sexual orientation and stress hormones. It starts out with gonads and strife. Of course. So perfect. The most important part of the review, I read the most convincing evidence to the fact that the brain, even in near death, wouldn't be able to produce enough DMT in order for you to experience a trip is this. Okay, quote, if the pineal gland were producing DMT for an out-of-body experience, it would need to very rapidly over perhaps no more than a minute or two. 
to produce 25 milligrams of DMT. Oh my God. Keep in mind that the mean daily output of melatonin from this little pineal gland is approximately 30 micrograms, about one thousandth of the weight of DMT needed to activate DMT space. That is quite a set of numbers. That is quite a difference in <laughs> dose. And dose really fucking matters um, for the DMT experience. As I understand it, having never experienced it and only really heard about it in a handful of highly unscientific uh-huh. sources. Yeah, Mr. Moss. <laughs> oh, oh and, and I met him in person once. Oh, shit. Uh, Uh, Under what circumstances? Oh, just, uh, I was at a comedy show and he performed. And then afterwards, uh, because he was talking so much about neuroscience, my boyfriend at the time pulled me over to like, hey, come on, let's meet him. And and so I got to introduce myself as a neuroscientist. That's all. Oh, hey, no big deal. Very quaint. He asked what I did and uh, I kick myself for not phrasing it differently. Told him uh, maternal experience is what I studied. But I wish looking back that I said, I studied the most addictive thing known to man. (laughs) And then say what? I'm like, babies. (laughs) Whatever with the buildup. Once you have that baby, you're going to love it forever. Like, I just wish I had like, that's so stupid. I'm going to put it in the extra stuff. I don't want everyone to know that I'm such a Don't feel stupid. I'm such a dorky thing. Sometimes I kick myself for not saying this at the time to sound dynamic to someone I don't know. Listen, kicking yourself for not saying things or for saying things to people you don't know is one of life's most occupying pastimes. I couldn't think of the right verb for that. And you know what? I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I should have said something different. I couldn't find the word in time. We both do this at a professional level. (laughs) Let's move on then. Uh, Please. Please. I I just want to say... Okay, you know how you can be like just, a I'll little- I'll just cut all this. Okay, well, fuck you. <laughs> you don't no, okay. get to Please. hear what I was going to say about dose-dependent effects. What about it? it? Just You know how you can be like a little drunk, and you can drink a little more and be like a little more drunk, and you can drink a yes. little more and eventually make your way to a lot drunk? Uh-huh. From what I've heard, again from Mr. Moss, <laughs> a trip on DMT doesn't- it really doesn't quite work like that. Like, you have to take the amount that gets you over the mm. threshold of tripping. Okay. As I understand it, it's three hits, no relation to the Indigo Girls song. And I don't actually know what happens if you stop at two hits, but apparently <laughs> you waste a night. And he's like, well, just so you know, it comes on very fast and it's very intense. You're going to have the first hit, you're probably going to feel weird. Then you'll have the second hit. That's when it's too much for most people. Most people think they had too much. Something's gone wrong. They want to stop. Whatever you do, don't stop. You have to keep going. You have to get that third hit. You'll break through to this other space. It's a mystery. It's a <laughs> the answer to which may or may not be in the literature, but it's a mystery to us. Guaranteed. We're so good. We've got so much content. We're happy clams. So it's time for closing ceremonies. We're going to say goodbye to you for the next two weeks. 
My takeaway is a couple of tricks that you can do when you're feeling really shitty and somebody asks how you're doing and you don't want to mm. look them in the eye and say, I feel really shitty. <laughs> I hate lying to people. And when I'm feeling shitty and somebody asks how I am, I don't like saying okay when I'm not okay. It just, sure. Thank you. It just feels wrong. So yeah. I looked up online what do you say <laughs> in these situations? And I came across two very cute examples that people shared from their life. One of them was a grandfather who had been in a war and had been having problems ever since then with post-traumatic stress and, and injuries. And when people asked him how he was, he would say, never better. And it was... You automatically got there. Cool. Instead uh -huh. of like, I've never been better. He's meaning, I'm never better. God damn. <laughs> yeah. Accurate. Cutting. I love it. I hate it. The other one that I loved was a stressed out guy out of law school, maybe working in a law office and highly stressed out. And when people asked him how he was doing, he would say, each day is better than the next. <laughs> That little next, <laughs> changing the whole meaning of it to say, every day is getting worse. So those are two that you are so God smart damn. because you picked them up really quickly. If somebody were to just throw that to me, I would have thought that they were doing just fine and I could have moved on with my interaction with them. <laughs> Can I tell you my version of that? That's It's not the, yes. the same, but it's in... Okay, so when someone asks me to do something that I... That, correct thing to do is say yes I'll do it but I really don't fucking want to yeah. if someone's like hey do you want to clean out that cupboard full of shit and fire <laughs> I would say um I might say I would love nothing more you bitch you say that to me all the time <laughs> Sorry. much of the time I prefer the void <laughs> sorry but that doesn't mean I won't do it. So you're meaning when you say that I would pref I would like nothing anymore? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I, more than that, I would like nothing. <laughs> but like, you don't always get what you want. You say that every single time <laughs> we're moving on <laughs> to like, do you want to go to Notable News? Oh <laughs> say that to me. <laughs> I would very often prefer the void. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. To everyone listening to this right now, when she does that in the future, I'm not going to mention anything. I'm not going to say anything to suggest or to reference this right now. This is gone. This is a secret between everyone who has listened this far in this episode to listening to any of the past or future episodes. Bonus. Okay, <laughs> Leah, what's your takeaway? My takeaway is about the inherent creepiness of brain cells just during or after death. I think some stuff came out relatively recently about the recently deceased brain and activity therein. Really? I haven't heard about this. I haven't looked into it. I saw some very spooky headlines. I just and I was talked like, oh, about just it for half an hour. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you <laughs> I were talking about like neural activity, like specifically after death. Yeah, there was the zombie genes. 
uh, that were talked about mm, mm-hmm. on episode 14. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that sounds very creepy until you think about, you know, the actual process of dying. And, like, if it weren't possible for cells to remain alive for some time after they're no longer connected to a living host organism... Like, we wouldn't have cell culture or slice electrophysiology Mm -hmm. or organ donation for that fucking matter. I mean, I know the clock is ticking there, but it is a clock and not a sign that says too bad the organ's dead. (laughs) I feel like uh, it should look like a Looney Tunes, like the the kidney has suddenly has a hand and is putting out a sign in front of it that says closed for business. Yeah, no, that would be a very helpful clinical indicator. I'm gonna go ahead and draw that. And that will be on the Instagram at some point. One of the things I think about whenever I think about a dying brain, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, having read this stuff, is the idea that The recording that was made that I discussed earlier is about different brain regions being able to connect and respond to each other. There's a period of time when each brain region is probably only able to contact themselves, that they're not able. And so then each cell becomes its own entity, like you're being broken down into a billion different units that are all like dying at different oh i'm sorry leah's face (laughs) no it's good it's good no don't be also (gasps) oh my god right so what were you saying about it not being creepy (laughs) it's no more creepy than any other aspect of life yeah which is intensely creepy and weird and what (laughs) yep Well, you can hear more from this lovely Leah lady online. Her handle on Twitter is Hawks in Socks, and that's Hawks with an X. You can find me at Curls PhD or follow the show at MisbehaviorJC. That's still going to be around. I'm going to be posting fun things on Twitter and Instagram, as always, including a picture of a, what is it, anthropomorphized if it's a kidney? Yeah, anthropomorphized kidney putting up a sign saying closed for business. That's creepy, though, because it's a part of an anthro. I didn't know if it was personification or anthropomorphization. Hmm. That's a question for the next episode. Thank you for allowing (laughs) us into your auditory pathway. Tell your friends about the show so that we can continue to do it. Tell your enemies. Just don't tell your PI. Please subscribe and, and rate us. I love the people who've been doing that. And we hope you join the club again soon. We really do. Oh, and don't forget to misbehave. (gasps) Yes. But maybe not so hard that you die. Don't. Misbehave just hard enough to do cool things without dying.